Hey, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Today, we are going to begin um, what will be a sermon series for the majority of our fall together. And we are going to be in the first three chapters of Genesis. Um, And then into the Advent season, we will turn our attention to the last couple of chapters of the book of Revelation. Um, That is what we'll do together. And I'll say just a little bit more about that in a second. But as you're turning there and as you are getting settled in, um, I want to just tell you briefly just how much I've missed you. Um, I have been away from Grace for 12 weeks, and those 12 weeks were an incredible gift of God's grace to me. Um, Incredibly refreshing but it has not been easy to be away from you. And so, so in that, I think there's a thank you, okay? Um, so thank you for being the kind of church that the pastor could feel that way about, okay? Not every pastor feels that way, um, but I do. I'm thankful. Um, a second thing I want to say is, in these 12 weeks, I feel like the Lord has given me just a fresh enthusiasm about the work that in particular he has called me to here at Grace, and um, I'm thankful for that, and I hope to just kind of share more about that in the weeks that are to come. Um, just a couple of preliminary words just about our time in the book of Genesis Um, I've heard it said before that the Bible has two parts. It has Genesis 1 to 3, and it has the rest of it. In other words, what people, what Christians for thousands of years has recognized that all the great foundational truths and themes about the Bible are laid out for us in its first few chapters. And if we can gain a hold of God and his character and his ways in the world from these first few chapters, it'll help us make sense of our lives. It'll help us make sense of the rest of scripture's pages. As you'll see tonight, a theme will be unveiled here that we'll get to trace throughout the pages of of the scriptures. Um, Another thing, the final two chapters of the book of Revelation are similar in their significance. If we can gain a sense of what's going on there, it'll help us have a kind of resolve and endurance and hope in our lives. That is what we're going to do together on this fall and into the Advent season. If you'll notice in your worship guide, there's the sermon text, but you also will see that it says a New Testament reading. And let me just briefly explain that. Um, For every Uh, sermon in the book of Genesis, alongside that sermon text, we're going to read from a text um, from the New Testament that shines light on how we're to understand that particular text from Genesis, if that makes sense. It's a way of trying to tie together these themes from Scripture in our time together. So uh, I'm going to read Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 2 slowly. Um, I'm going to read from the Gospel of Mark. Feel free to just listen to that, turn to it, whatever you feel you want to do, and then I will pray and ask for the Lord's help tonight. So let's listen carefully to this God's word from the book of Genesis. Here's what it says. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens 
and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In the Gospel of Mark, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, in this moment, we want to ask by the power of your spirit and in your kindness and in your mercy that you would be at work hovering about in this room in such a way that we would hear or that we would mark either with our pens or in our hearts that we would eat and digest these words from your word. Lord, in your great kindness, would you use the words that I prepared? Would you use it to give us great joy in you, we pray. And we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I want to tell you a little bit about what it looks like for me. And I wonder if you can relate with this. But here's what it looks like for me. So I wake up in the morning, and normally when I wake up in the morning, I sleep on my left side, so I'm facing that way. And I wake up in the morning with a little face about six inches from mine. And he or she says to me, Daddy, when are you going to wake up? And I say to him or her, I say, um, I don't know, what time is it? And then this person responds back to me, it's 7.10. To which I grab my phone, I verify that he's right about that, and I shoot out of bed and I start running around crazy. I start saying, well, why aren't your clothes on? You, 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 I put your clothes out for you, I wear your clothes. No, not those socks, those socks don't look really right with that. Okay, whatever, I don't really care. Um, I don't know where your other tennis shoe is. Where's your other tennis shoe? You left your tennis shoe outside. It rained last night. Fine, don't, just get whatever shoe you want to get. I don't care. Uh, yeah, mom's going to pack the lunches. Were you going to order your lunch? Were you going to buy your lunch? Or were you going to, yeah, like, yeah, just go get your water bottle. I don't care. Just get yourself, like, get in the car. We got to go. No, it's 740. You're supposed to be there in five minutes. You have to put on your pants. Like, and then I go to work. And I get text messages and emails and there are meetings or I get texts saying, hey, when are you coming? And I realize that I'm not in a meeting I was supposed to be in. This doesn't happen as often as it used to now that Laura works for the church. But anyway, um, it's chaotic and it's crazy. And there's things I'm supposed to be doing. And then I get home at the end of the day and normally I have to go to the grocery store. I have to cook dinner. We get everybody to eat. We get them to get to the showers or do their homework or organize their stuff. And then we clean the kitchen. And then all of a sudden we look down and that 7.10 a.m is now 10, 10 p.m. And we get in our bed and we turn off the light. In other words, my life sometimes 
feels chaotic. And in that chaotic moment, there's something else. I think the conscious thought, and I wonder if you know what I mean. I think to myself, what just happened? What was that? What was it for? What did it mean? In other words, that feeling of chaos turns to a feeling of, I don't know, emptiness. And in that moment of chaos, which has now turned to a moment of emptiness, I realize that it's dark. And I mean that in two ways. It's dark in the sense that the scriptures teach us that our world is dark. But it's also literally dark, meaning it is hard to see clearly. My life can feel kind of chaotic. It can feel rather empty, and it can certainly feel dark, either because the power of evil or because it's just sometimes so hard to see what God is doing. And it's into that moment that I'm here to tell you that Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, speaks. And there is a main thing I want to make sure that you hear tonight. This is the main thing. If you don't hear anything else I say, this is what I want you to hear. These first lines of the Bible introduce us to God. We'll talk about that. We're introduced to God, the creator God, and in particular, a God and hear me clearly, who brings order to chaos, who brings fullness where things seem empty, and he brings light into the dark places. We're going to meet God. That'll be the first move of this sermon. We're going to talk about God, the creator God. And then secondly, we're going to talk about how he is revealed as a God. It sets up the theme that he is a God who orders the chaos, who fills the emptiness, and who shines light into darkness. And these truths have the potential, I promise you, of giving your heart a sense of fresh joy tonight. So let's take a look. First of all, let's meet God. Verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. The Bible's pages begin with an introduction of us as readers to God. And in this introduction, in these first four words, in the beginning, God, is something very, very, very important about God and something very, very, very important about you. And it's the kind of thing, it's the kind of thing that if you don't grasp it, your life will not make a lot of sense. In fact, you will walk around in your life kind of frustrated, sometimes kind of annoyed, or at least exhausted and confused if you don't catch what's being shown to us here. 
And it's, it's this. And I'm going to say it plainly. These first four words tell us that it is God. It is God. He is the one that sits at the center of reality. He is the one that sits at the center of all things. Okay, for you non-grammar people, you math and science people, this is my moment, okay? God is the subject of the sentence, which means it is God who performs the action. In these, this first chapter, um, we'll learn that God is going to be the one that this whole story is about. God is going to be named, acting, doing something 35 times in this first chapter alone. Next week, we're going to read it slowly out loud with different parts and different voices so you can gain a sense of that. There will be one voice who will continue to say, and God, and God said, and it'll happen over and over and over and over again because the Bible wants you to know from the beginning who the story is about. The primary interest of this chapter of Genesis is God. The primary interest of this book of Genesis is God. The primary interest of the first five books, a section of the Old Testament is God. The primary interest of the Old Testament is God. The primary interest of the New Testament is God. The primary interest of all the pages of the scriptures is God. I heard a scholar say it like this. If we come to the Bible with any other primary interest other than getting to know God's character and ways, we will always misread the story. It doesn't mean we can't come to the Bible with other interests. It just means if the primary one is not to understand God, who he is and what he does and what he's like, his ways in the world, we'll read the story wrong. A a scholar that I really like frames it up like this. We tend to come to the Bible for the wrong reasons. Like, for example, I'll just give you an example. We tend to come to the Bible as an example to help us, like, make a decision about something. Like, for example, you have job A that you're thinking about applying for, or you have job B you're thinking about applying for, and you're not sure which to apply for. We have a tendency to go to the Bible thinking that somewhere in the Bible's pages, it's going to say something to us like this. Hey, thou shalt take job A. And this is a good time to tell you that the Bible rarely gives direction like that. But let me tell you what the Bible is going to do instead. The Bible is going to show you God, his character, what he's like, what his ways are in the world. And as you wrap your life and your heart and your mind and your thoughts and your body and your daily activities around that reality, you gain this thing called wisdom, and then you're able to think, yeah, job B. See how that's harder and longer and less certain? But the Bible's most interested in pointing us to God. So God is the one who sits at the center of reality. I want to belabor this point. He's the one who sits at the center of all things, which is another way of saying that human beings do not sit at the, re- at the center of reality. We don't. It's another way of saying that you and I don't 
sit at the center of all things. No offense. And this truth that is given to us from these first four words, in the beginning, God, I find that it is frustrating and freeing simultaneously. I wonder if you know what I mean. Let me explain. I find it frustrating that God is the center of reality. Like when I read that and hear that, I think to myself, ugh. It's frustrating if God's at the center of reality. In particular, if you are the kind of person who likes to be in control of your life. In particular, if you're the kind of person who likes to do something like making plans. It can be frustrating if you're the kind of person like me who lives in a world that tells you that your life is mostly about you. Some of us like things being centered on us. Some of us really, really like it. And if that is you, or if it's me, then it can be frustrating to know that God sits at the center of all things. It can rub you the wrong way. It can make you uncomfortable. It can make you rethink your life But it is also at the same time, maybe even more so, it's so freeing. It is a relief, it's because aren't you so exhausted? Aren't you so tired of being the center of all things? Aren't you so exhausted and tired of your gaze always being so centered on yourself? You're never able to take your eyes off. You can be free of that posture tonight. Now, if God sits at the center of all things, then the chief task of your life is to get used to that. But not just to get used to it begrudgingly, but to learn to enjoy the fact that he's at the center. So that's part one, God. Now, God is revealed in this text as the center of all things and as the creator. We're gonna talk about this at length in the weeks that are to come, but look with me again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in this passage, we're gonna gain a sense of how God creates, how he works, the kinds of things that he does when he makes things. Every creative person that I know has a creative process. For example, my wife Mandy makes flowers for weddings sometimes, and she has a, she has a process. Okay, I've witnessed it lots of times. She gets all the flowers there on the table. She gets scissors and begins cutting them and like shards of grass and green stuff just starts flying everywhere. She puts them into a vase or like is a vase container thing, and um, and I promise you, she does this. She she arranges them and she steps back from it and she does this and she just goes and looks at it and then goes back to starting again. She's got to create a process. She sizes it up and she approaches it again. And God has a way that He creates. And what's particularly important that I have to get you to see tonight 
is that his way of making, his way of creating is by transforming things. In particular, for the rest of this chapter, he's going to create and transform by bringing order to chaos, by bringing fullness where there's emptiness, and then by bringing light to darkness. The rest of the creation story is gonna follow that theme. Order to chaos, fullness to emptiness, light to darkness. And it's mysterious. Look with me at verse two. We're told the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep without form and void, darkness over the face of the deep. From the first lines of scripture, there is a tone, an ominous tone. Something isn't right. Well, Joel, what do you mean? How do you know that? Well, the words form without form or formless and void and dark. This is a really particular phrase in the Bible that is only gonna be used two other times. Formless, void, and dark. And in those places where the scriptures describe this little phrase, formless and void and dark, it's a descriptor of things not being the way that they're supposed to be. Something has gone wrong to make things dark and formless. It's the language in the Bible, this phrase, formless or without form and void and darks. It's the language in the Bible of chaos, of emptiness, of, of, of something not being the way it's supposed to be. The language in the scriptures of darkness is kind of a brooding, kind of nerve wracking thing. Something's dark. Now, this is very mysterious. The Bible's gonna tell us a lot of mysterious things, by the way. We're two verses in and we get one of the most mysterious things it tells us anywhere. But it tells us that something has gone wrong in the universe before God makes the world that we know. I don't know if you've ever wondered when you read the rest of the Genesis story, how does the serpent end up in the garden? Like how, where did where'd the serpent come from? Well, apparently scholars read this and apparently something's gone wrong in the world. Perhaps Satan has already rebelled against God prior to the world being made. But what I want you to see here is that when God begins to do the work of creation, he does it by way of transformation, renewing things, reordering things. In particular, he transforms situations. He transforms a chaotic situation and he brings order. He transforms a empty situation and brings fullness. He transforms a dark situation and brings light. And he does that by the power of his spirit. Look at what it says. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The waters in the ancient world were a chaotic, bad place. And the spirit of God is hovering over this in order to begin the work of making and creating. We're gonna talk about this at length, so nobody freak out. But the rest of the scriptures are going to play on this very theme. Throughout the pages of the Bible, we're gonna see it in every story, in every poem that's written, in every song of celebration, in every 
table of commandments, our moral instruction, in every prophetic speech, we're going to see this theme play out. God being a God who makes and creates by transforming. Y'all, I've had a lot of time on my hands. So for fun, I made a list. Okay? Listen to this. I'm going to kind of go through these fast. Okay? From this point forward, we're going to see God take things create and transform, brings order to chaos, fullness to emptiness, light from darkness. I'll give you some examples. So in the next few chapters, where there is loneliness, God is going to transform and bring a helper. Where there is shame and nakedness, he's going to bring clothing and covering. Where there is sin, he's going to go to work and bring grace. Where there is the failure of his people, he's going to swoop in creatively and begin offering precious promises. Where there is confusion, he's going to go to work to, to transform confusion into clarity. Where there is evil, he's going to bring his perfect justice. Where there is right judgment, he's going to go to work to transform that situation and offer free mercy. Where are those in his in the rest of the story, where his people don't have a family, he's going to take and create and give them and make them a family. Where his people are faithless, he's going to swoop in and he is going to bring his faithfulness. Where there is no way forward, he's going to bring a way forward. Where there is slavery in Egypt, he's going to come in and transform the situation to bring freedom. Where his people are weary, he's going to offer them rest. Where they're blocked, there's such a roadblock, he's going to pave a way through the Red Sea. Where they complain, he's going to enter in and transform the situation, offering his perfect patience. Where there is a famine and no food, guess what? He's going to come in and provide, guess what? Food. Where they are thirsty, he's going to provide and create and enter in and transform their situation and give them drink. And this is just Genesis and Exodus. That's all I've told you so far. Would you believe me if I told you? It goes on to say that where his people are in mourning, he will swoop in and turn their mourning to dancing. Where they feel regret, he offers redemption. Where they're in despair, he gives them hope. Where their path is unsure, he's their perfect guide. Where there is absence, he transforms things and offers his presence. Where there is sorrow, he converts it to joy. Again, mourning to dancing, ashes into beauty. Joel, are you sure that God is a God who does this? Yes, I'm totally sure. How do you know? Because he already has. Would you believe me if I told you that this creator God that we're introduced to in these four, first four chapters, when he comes in flesh, that the first scene we see as he begins his ministry, would you believe me if I told you, and I already read it for you, would you believe me if I told you that this God in human flesh, Jesus, will come up out of water and the Spirit of God will descend upon him. Another way to read the language is that the Spirit of God began to hover over him. 
so that new recreation, new creation can begin and be launched. And when Jesus shows up on the scene in a world full of lies, he will be the truth. In the world of many ways, he will be the way. Where his people are under the stain of sin, he is going to bring cleansing. Where their burdens feel heavy, he will create and make them light. Where they are lost, he's going to create and transform the situation in such a way that they can be found. Where they are sick, he brings healing. Where there is a debt to be paid, he will satisfy that on the cross with a payment. Where there is death, he transforms it to life. Where his people feel abandoned, they learn that he works in such a way that they will never be left or forsaken ever. Where there is pain, he promises comfort. Where there's division, he promises unity. Where there is weakness, he offers his perfect strength. And where his people cannot see clearly or where it is dim, he transforms their situation so much so that they'll be able one day to see his face. We serve a God who sits at the center of all things. He's the creator God, and the way he creates is by transforming situations. He takes chaotic things and brings order. He takes empty things and brings fullness. He takes dark things and shines light. Joel, why are you telling us all of this? Well, let me tell you, I am not telling you all of this because the people in this room need to be convinced that life can feel chaotic, empty, and dark. The people in this room and in the room at four o'clock do not have to be convinced that life sometimes can feel chaotic and empty and dark. Our church family in particular has seen our fair share of chaotic, empty, dark things even recently. But I am telling you these things because what I want you to hear from me is if your life feels chaotic and empty and dark, if your situation is such that you need the creative power of God to come in and transform, then I want to tell you clearly three things. Number one, you have come to the exact right God. Number two, I promise you, there is nothing that he cannot do. Nothing that he cannot do. The same one who can speak and make a world with his words, there is nothing he cannot do. And then third, if for any reason your life feels chaotic and empty and dark, what I'm here to tell you is it means he's not finished. And it means he hasn't even gotten started. And this has a way of providing for you certain hope and the most inexplicable joy that you can imagine. Let's pray. Lord, there's a lot here, and it's easier to talk about from a pulpit than to lean on and rejoice in, in the ups and downs of our lives. But my prayer, our prayer, is that you, by the power of your spirit, would hover over the things that are present in this room tonight. Would you hover over and would you transform in such a way that you give us deep 
deep sense of joy and rejoicing tonight, we pray. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.